course, immigration is an issue, and you've got to deal with it, and you've got to put proper controls around it. But you know, no one who studies the history of developed countries in the last few decades can think anything other than that immigration properly controlled is a good, not a bad thing for a country. And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. In the last few days, I've been thinking a lot about the big college admission scandal in the United States. The giant scheme in which about 50 VIPs conspired to ensure that children would get into top colleges by bribing athletic coaches, by cheating on entrance exams. And one of the things that struck me about this is just how united Americans were in the revulsion about this scheme. At a moment in which we seem to be able to turn anything into a partisan fight, at a moment in which Americans have vastly divergent views about equality and whether most people are rich because of their own efforts or because of their lucky circumstances, we were all united in this revulsion. To understand this, I was thinking back to a concept that Michael Walzer the great political theorist, introduced in the early 1980s. He pointed out that there are different distributive spheres, that there are some aspects of life in which most of us feel that it is perfectly fine for money to determine who gets what. If you have 10 Rolexes and I have to look the time up by looking at my phone, that doesn't seem to be, to me, a huge injustice in the world. But things start to get sour when one kind of good is infinitely convertible into every other kind of good. Historically, these kinds of universal currencies have varied. In aristocratic societies, it is honor. In theocratic societies, it is moral or religious virtue, which allowed priests and aristocrats and dukes to convert the resource they hoarded into all kinds of other things, into political power, into vast wealth, into access to the most desirable spouses, and so on and so forth. Well, in our society, of course, it is money. The revulsion at the cheating scandal is in part a revulsion at the fact that a good which should be distributed according to some other criteria, we don't always agree about what those are, but there might be academic merit, there might be all kinds of other things, is instead determined by the checkbook of these applicants' parents. And the fact that this revulsion is so universal made me think one last thing, which is that if liberals want to persuade the fellow citizens to care about the injustices in our economic system, to actually make real structural reforms that ensure that everybody plays by the same rules, it would be helpful for them to couch some of this in this language. To speak not just of the injustice of inequality in itself, but to speak specifically about the ways in which many people in the contemporary United States don't play by the rules, and in which they are able to use their wealth to convert it into all kinds of other goods, like college admissions, 
which should not go to the richest just because they have money. But now it's my special pleasure to introduce to you the next guest who doesn't really need any introduction. He is the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland, Tony Blair. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Thank you very much, Yasha. So the favorite game we play on this podcast is to try and figure out the causes of populism. And we've been talking about that a little bit. You know, the headline question is always, is it the economy? Is it culture? Is it something in between? What's your general view on that? I think there are two objective factors, one economic, one cultural. So on the economy, it's a sense that the next generation may not do better than this generation. So that generational promise seems to be broken and stagnating incomes amongst a certain group of the population, at least. So there's economic reasons for it, anxiety over globalization and cultural, really around immigration, but both come together in a feeling that people have that they've lost control, that their destiny is being decided by other people without their say. And I think those are the two objective factors. And then I think there's one other very subjective factor, which is social media, which itself is a revolutionary phenomenon and which lends itself very easily to populist discourse. So when people feel like they don't have control, I suppose that means they should take back control, a slogan that you don't necessarily agree with in the British context. But are people upset about the objective conditions or are they upset about the sense that the political system isn't responding to them? that they have to play by the rules and other people don't. I mean, to what extent do we actually need to, for example, be able to radically increase living standards generation after generation after generation? And to what extent is this a sense of discomfort and displeasure with how politics is working and whether people feel a sense of agency in their lives? I think it's all of those things. But it's mostly people feel that settled ways of existence are being disrupted. You know, a lot of people may keep the same income, but maybe they got two or three jobs. They don't have the same sense of security, same sense of self-worth in the work that they do. I think there's a perception that some people are doing very well out of the system and others aren't. So all of these things create a sense of alienation. But populism always thrives in an era of pessimism. And I think people are more pessimistic. So one of the interesting things is when we do polling on countries that are obviously much poorer than Britain or the United States, like Nigeria or India, and right. you poll people there, they're on the whole optimistic about the future, even though you would look at their living conditions and say, well, those are much worse than those people in the West. But it's their expectation is that they will do better. And I think that expectation is not present amongst a large part of the Western population. Well, interestingly, you have a little bit of the same phenomenon in the United States, for example, where actually uh, ethnic minorities are much more optimistic about the future because their experience over the last 30 or 40 years has been of things getting better. So even though the absolute level is lower, they are more optimistic about the future, which is an interesting parallel. How much can politics do about this? Isn't this partially a function of the fact that the West is at the technology frontier. It has already had that period where it could have six or seven percent growth rates, where living standards could double in a generation. It probably is going to continue to experience at least relative decline compared to large parts of Asia and so on. Is that sense of disappointed expectations baked into reality in a way that politicians can't actually fix? Or do you think the right set of policies can engender enough optimism to get us through this? I think it's possible to rekindle optimism. I mean, I personally think the single most important thing 
that is going to affect us in terms of the way we work and live and think and govern is going to be the technological revolution. So for me, this has become absolutely central. I think that its implications for every area of policy are enormous. If I was back in government today, I would be really shaping my government program around how do you access the opportunities of the technology and mitigate its risks, its displacement effects, and so on. So if you look at the digitization of industry, it's the single biggest thing that's going to happen in the next decade, two decades. If you look at healthcare, education, transport, law and order, even defense, all of these are going to be revolutionized by technology. Now that can allow us to provide much better services for people, much greater opportunity for people, but it will transform the workplace and the way we live. So I think it's possible to get back to an optimistic view of the future, but only if you're prepared to address the change that's happening and make it work for people. And I think the problem at the moment is that I say that about the technological revolution. I don't think it really features in the political debate in Britain. I think it literally, other than myself and one or two other people, I don't think anyone's talking about it. And yet if you go out and talk to people you know, who are creating businesses or running businesses, they'll tell you that is the single biggest thing that's going on in their business right now. I mean, apart from in the British case, Brexit, obviously, but in terms of the future changes. And you know, it doesn't mean to say that if China and India become much more economically successful and their people become wealthier, it doesn't mean to say that relatively we've got to experience decline. Hmm. You know, in some ways, the world opening up is a good thing, not a bad thing, as we know from the fact that 30 years of opening up in China also provided us with cheap consumer goods. But it poses challenges. Politics is the only answer to this, by the way, but it requires certainly the progressive part of politics to adopt a quite different set of policies from traditional ones. So since you're the inveterate optimist, let me play the devil's pessimist. So if we do have technological development as rapid as you're predicting, one of the things that may happen is that essentially any relatively unskilled job can just be taken over by technology. And according to some analysts, essentially we'll get to a point in which if you have an IQ lower than about 100, there's just really no work left that a machine can't take over from you. If that's the case, then of course we'll have incredibly cheap goods and all of those things. We'll also have about half of humanity for whom there is no longer any real need and who therefore doesn't feel like they have a valued place in society. And I imagine that would create incredible resentment and a real political rebellion. Again, is the answer to that universal basic income? Would that even be enough? If technology does develop in that direction, how can we make sure that the bulk of citizens feels needed in society and is regarded as needed? Because that strikes me as one of the preconditions of democracy. Yeah, but you know, I think the sort of dystopian vision or nightmare shouldn't be like that, and it doesn't need to be like that. And firstly, I think if there are unskilled jobs being replaced, this frankly has been going on for a long period of time. And in any event, you know, what most people want is, is skilled work. They want to be able to exercise their brain, not just do basic manual labor. And I think that therefore issues around education, for example, infrastructure are going to be extraordinarily important. And we're still not really grasping that you're going to have to change completely the way we educate, not just our young people, but those who are already in the workforce. But, you know, that's also a very exciting prospect. And there can be new jobs created as well. And, you know, I've got an open mind on universal basic income. I think it may be an answer for some people, but it's not. You know, in the end, you and I both want to use our brains and right. work. Okay, right. and if we want to do that, probably most people do. So. Yeah, the universal basic income strikes me as the least worst solution to a dystopian scenario. Yeah, 
but we don't need to be in that scenario, and we shouldn't. Look, I think it's akin to the 19th century Industrial Revolution and its impact. And for a time, obviously, government really didn't adapt and legislation didn't adapt in the way it needed to. And so there was decades of very severe exploitation until trade unions and others started to get basic protections for people at the workplace. Social insurance came in, you know, the welfare state was created. But we can look back on that now and realize that we should be trying to deal with these things now because it will require a completely new approach from government. And if we approach it in the right way, if you take education or healthcare, those are two areas that could be transformed beneficially by technology. Mm. You know, we could be teaching children individually, which makes much more sense in the end because children adapt in different ways and different subjects and so on. In healthcare, people with chronic diseases could lead a far better life. You know, we may be able to improve or even cure certain conditions that presently we can't. So there's a whole set of things that, you know, we can do that will make the life of people better. I always wonder about whether the Industrial Revolution is the right metaphor. And, you know, to be honest, personally, I think it probably is. And if it is, then what you're saying is right. The fear for is that if we do get a kind of general intelligence, it would be a real face change. Because at the time of the Industrial Revolution, you had people losing one kind of manual labor and the need for different manual labor being created. Now, certain people who trained for the first set of manual jobs may not have been able to make that transition. And because of the lack of a welfare state, that could mean horrible individual fates. But there wasn't a mass displacement of the need for some form of manual labor. If what we're facing now is that basically we just no longer need any real forms of manual labor, that is a much more fundamental shift. And I'm a little skeptical of the answer of we'll skill everybody up because I think there's always been people who prefer to work with their hands, who have a great aptitude for that. And retrofitting them to a very different kind of labor, I think, is a qualitatively different challenge, even from what we faced in the Industrial Revolution. It may not come to pass that way. I think it's very hard to predict the shape of technology. But if what some of the people in Silicon Valley are saying is right, then that's the future we face. And I wonder whether it may be a more fundamental challenge, even than the Industrial Revolution. Well, I guess, to state the obvious, it's very hard to predict this. But if it is an even more fundamental challenge, then it means that it's even more important to allow politics to open its mind to what the possibilities and the risks are and to start to deal with it. And I think what it will mean, for example, is probably a reconstruction of the traditional state and certainly traditional state provision. But I don't see this happening as a political debate much. I mean, the thing I think that's really strange about politics today is that it's kind of gone backwards. I mean, I find there's an intense conservatism, left and right, in the political debate today. So I'm debating people in the British Labour Party whose solutions, I mean, they're just old state solutions. I mean, from the 60s. I mean, I remember we used to have these debates when I was at university in the 70s. And yet this kind of retro idea has come back as this is how we're going to shape the future For example, we're having a debate in the UK on transport that's about do we renationalize the railways and bring back what was then the nationalized rail company called British Rail. I mean, anyone with any experience in British Rail would think, <laughs> I mean, how is that progress? I mean, I'm not saying it was really bad, but it certainly wasn't really good. And in any event, it's obviously not the issue you're going to face in transport in the next few years, where you're going to probably have driverless cars electric vehicles, and the potential, again, through technology to have high-speed rail links. And I don't know what the answers to all those things are, but I know if I was back in government today, those are the things I'd want answering, not going back in time. And likewise with the right, I mean, on immigration. 
of course, immigration is an issue. You've got to deal with it. And you've got to put proper controls around it. But you know, no one who studies the history of developed countries in the last few decades can think anything other than that immigration properly controlled is a good, not a bad thing for a country. You mentioned Silicon Valley. Look at it. The vast bulk of the people who have created some of the most exciting and dynamic things have come from migrant families. So this is what I think is the problem with politics at the moment, is we're locked in a conversation that in a modern world that's changing very fast to the future, it's kind of like two forms of conservatism competing with visions essentially rooted in the past. So immigration and visions of the past, I think, is an important topic, both in the United States with Donald Trump and in Europe with various far-right populist parties. The issue of immigration has transformed our politics in a fundamental way. And I wonder whether it is because we don't quite have a vision of a future multi-ethnic society that commands consensus of a clear majority in society in any of these countries. So for you, what would a fair multi-ethnic society look like? What story of ourselves should we be telling in order to integrate the immigrants that we need into the society in a way that doesn't lead to the kind of political backlash we've been experiencing for the last 10 years? So I think you've got to distinguish between two separate things. One is immigration and a multi-ethnic society, because in the end, all of our modern Western societies will, to a degree, become like this. And as I say, I think it's basically a good thing, not a bad thing. In any event, by the way, in today's world, I think it's virtually an inevitable thing. But I think the second part of that is then to make sure this happens in a way that people feel it's not just happening, but they have some control over its progress, its evolution. For example, one of the problems that we have, I think it's slightly different from the US, in Europe is when you get large-scale migration from majority Muslim countries, maybe in the Middle East or elsewhere in North Africa, people worry, are we bringing people in who don't properly share our values? Maybe you know we have security issues coming with it. You know, my experience in immigration, and I fought my last election campaign around, or the Conservatives tried to fight it on an anti-immigration position, and we successfully defeated that argument, but only by pitching our tent very carefully. You but know, what did that mean, and what would that mean? What that meant say was, in the 2020 presidential campaign for a democratic candidate. You know, you have to understand that you need controls, and you want managed legal migration. That's what you're aiming for. You can't just be in a position of saying, if you're raising this issue of immigration, then maybe you're just anti-immigrant. Because there are people who are anti-immigrant, but there are other people, and you can see this very clearly in the UK context, who are just worried because they see their societies changing very fast, and no one seems to be engaging with them on their worries about it. So I think, you know, the question of immigration is obviously crucial. I also do think there's a question about the people who are already within countries. I mean, when I look at a country like Germany, where I'm from, even before the refugee crisis, there was real far-right agitation and huge bestsellers being written about the integration of uh, the descendants of Turkish guest workers, for example, mm. and so-called guest workers, and the question of you know, what German identity should be like going forward. And I've been thinking a little bit about what New Labour represented in that respect, and I wonder whether it had two wings to it, or that perhaps it was a little indeterminate between two different answers. One is this sort of you know, famous 1997 ad, Things Can Only Get Better, where you walk through this sort of multicultural Britain. But it's really just a celebration of multi-ethnic togetherness, that all of these people of different origin together make up what Britain today is. There's also perhaps a slightly different strand when I think of the commission that Lord Parekh headed in the early 2000s, 
on behalf of your government when I think of which uh, talked, for example, about concepts like a community of communities, which really seemed to base the idea of Britishness on founding units, which were different communities. When I think of the fact of the introduction of state faith-based schools, which really seem to say, all right, it's fine for the state to fund schools which raise children in their own communities, perhaps without much contact to other communities. Are these two slightly different visions? And what kind of vision do you think we should embrace going forward? Is it one in which society is constituted of these groups and we are sort of brokering a peace between them? Or is it something where we really think of people as individuals outside of those groups and we celebrate that these individuals stem from different origins and so on, but we have perhaps a slightly more integrationist model? This is a very good question. It's very difficult terrain to discuss. But the way I always looked at it was that you have your common space and your space for diversity. The common space is a set of shared values. And those, whatever background you're from or whatever faith, culture, ethnicity, you're obligated as part of British society to respect and share those values. So you can't say, well, look, as a result of my faith, I don't believe in democracy or the rule of law or equal rights for women, or I want to be able to discriminate against gay people because my faith or culture tells me that this is what I should do. So there's a common space, and then there's a space for diversity. And that was one element of our idea, so that as you were bringing people into the country and the country was changing, nonetheless, the country was still anchored in the same set of values that were identifiably British values. A bit in the same way that America, as generations of migrants, obviously have built the country, and yet whatever their background, there's still something, or at least until recently, you could say there was something that was identifiably a shared set of American values and an established way of life. So that's one aspect of it. And I think the other aspect is literally just around how you make sure that it is legal migration that's properly controlled. So how far does a shared set of values and a common way of life go beyond just the simple fact of respecting laws and rules, right? So obviously the minimum ask in a liberal democracy has to be, you know, no matter what your own moral beliefs, you can't impose them on others. And so you may think, for example, that homosexuality is bad. It's a prerogative to think that in liberal society, but you cannot act on it in any kind of way. That's the minimum, right? But there's one kind of scenario in which we have different communities which nearly never intermarry, which perhaps rarely have real friendship between them, which really run on these quite parallel tracks. And there's another vision where we're saying, no, this may not happen through state coercion. It may not happen in any way through public policy, but we want an ideal in which actually groups start to interact as much as possible, where we have this sense of a common life that goes beyond, I'll let you do your terrible thing, you'll let me do what you think is my terrible thing, and we won't come to blows, but we really are leading in separate spheres. Yeah, I think you've always got to get very specific. So, for example, my government introduced a requirement that people who come in learn English. And I think where we've had communities in the UK where maybe second or even third generation people aren't speaking English, this is not sensible. So there's levels of integration that I think are really important. But communities whose members tend to marry people from the same community, I mean, this may or may not change over time, by the way. I mean, when I was growing up, there were parts of the UK, where if you were Catholic, you wouldn't marry a Protestant and vice versa. I mean, I always remember when I was young, my grandmother, who is a fierce Protestant, 
practically her last words to me, son, whatever else you do, never marry a Catholic, which I then did. Um, but, you know, so... And then even worse, you became a Catholic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think there are spheres in which government can become involved and spheres in which it's better to let things take a natural course. I guess, you know, think of something like the United States, that is something that always happened from the bottom up. And it strikes me that it's actually continuing to happen from the bottom up. There's a lot of minority groups in the United States who outmarry at huge rates. That has been true of a long time of Jews, but it's also true of Asian Americans. It's true of Latinos, actually. And it's much more true of African Americans than it used to be. And it strikes me as interesting in the public discourse in the United States, and to some extent in Europe as well, that this is both perhaps underplayed, that people actually aren't so aware of that phenomenon, and that there's a certain reluctance to celebrate it, because it perhaps sounds as though we're requiring people to give up the culture in a certain kind of way, which is not what it is, right? I mean, certainly I don't think the United States ever had a policy to require Irish Americans to stop strongly identifying with Ireland or to stop intermarrying other people whose roots lay in Ireland. And yet I think we can look back at the last 150 years of American history and say it's a good thing that the sort of strict line between Irish and Italians and wasps has started to blend. And I wonder whether that should inflect how we think about the future of a multi-ethnic society. Well, you're too young to remember all this, but... <laughs> I'm not as young as you think. <laughs> no, you're in your 30s. And so today's world, in the world we mix in, has much less prejudice than in the era I grew up in. In the era I grew up in, you know, and I watched, so I have studied firsthand the decline of prejudice in certain areas. I mean, when I was growing up, it would have been very bold for a black person to marry a white person. It would be very bold for an Asian person to marry outside of their community. You know, homophobia was kind of rampant, okay, and almost like accepted. I remember when Margaret Thatcher first became Conservative Party leader, you know, my dad saying to me, well, she's never going to win an election because the country will never elect a woman to be prime minister. Okay. Mm. So I have kind of watched these prejudices, thankfully, you know, slip away over time. And so I think really what it is, is it's people becoming comfortable with the fact that the way society is developed in a much more tolerant and open-minded way is a good thing and not a bad thing the older generation has actually shifted its position and the younger generation's really never been gripped by prejudice in the same way in a lot of different areas. So I think this is all positive. And I think in the end, by the way, we will overcome all of these problems because I think ultimately the future lies in connectivity, the future lies in being open-minded. And, you know, I often say to people, the big political divide today is really between the open-minded and the closed-minded but you can get closed-minded people of the left as well as the right. I have a question about that, actually, yeah. which is that that strikes me as an accurate analysis of what's going on. In many places, party structures haven't quite caught up with that open, closed divide, but that certainly seems to be the most lively political debate going on. But isn't there a great risk in that? Which is to say that if we end up with one set of parties who stand for the open society, and we live in a democracy which depends on the possibility of democratic alternation, of the government sometimes being able to lose because people are sick and tired of them and they want somebody new in, then that means that the closed side is going to win a lot of the time. And that we need the closed side to win in order to have a real democracy. And so I fear that if politics does actually become realigned along these open, closed fault lines, it will make for a very, very rocky democracy for the next decades. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. 
Although it's also possible that there are sufficient numbers of open-minded in both main political parties that they pull politics back towards a more reasonable position. But again, in the 1960s in the UK, when the first waves of black immigration were coming in to Britain, you know, at that time there were politicians who tried to create a whole politics around anti-immigration. Mm. You, know, you go back in the 1930s and Oswald Mosley in the UK. So it's not a new thing to do. Unfortunately, on each occasion, we've managed to get over it. But we got over it by ensuring that both major parties didn't fall into the hands of people advocating for close society. So that's why I think the risk I see in some political systems at the moment is that people proudly say, well, we're going to be the representatives of the open society 100%, and our political enemy is going to be the representative of a closed society 100%, and then we'll just win against them at every election. And that doesn't strike me as a sustainable plan for how to deal yeah. with the dangers of the closed no, society. Absolutely. I mean, that's completely right. But that's why you need, in both political parties both main political groupings, and we have exactly this problem in the UK at the moment, is you need that open-minded group to be much more active and much more assertive of the importance of that open-minded approach. I mean, I think the unanswered question at the moment, certainly European way, and for these purposes include Britain in this, is whether this divide between open and closed starts to fracture the actual political party system. And that's possible because Macron in France the new centre-ground party in Spain, actually all over Europe today, you can see this. And obviously in the UK, we've just had a splinter from both main political parties, pretty much on this basis, actually. Mm. So that's the other alternative. But I think right now, the single biggest challenge is to go back to first principles and argue why a kind of narrow-minded approach on immigration, protectionism, isolationism is not in anyone's interest. But the thing that is fascinating to me is you've got those elements, not so much on the left on immigration, but on protectionism and isolationism. There are points where the left kind of meets the right. We haven't talked about the economy very much yet. I think that's an area where your admonition not to go back to the solutions of the 60s or 70s seems very important. At the same time, people for relatively good reason feel that they haven't gotten much out of the economy for the last 30 or so years. A lot of people are saying, my living standard hasn't improved all that much. I think that if we keep going in the same direction, my job may be lost to free trade and so on. So how do we have forward-looking solutions to the well-founded set of concerns that a lot of people in the United States, in Great Britain, in parts of Western Europe have that with the current rules and the current setup, the economic system isn't really serving them very well. Yeah, they've got a point. <laughs> I mean, a perfectly reasonable point. The question is how you deal with it. And, you know, my view is that if I look at those people facing those circumstances in the UK, what is important is to support and empower them to improve their life and their ability to work in the new world of work that's going to come to pass. And that might, by the way, at certain points require a bigger role for the state. And then I think you can look at the taxation system and see how it can be unfair for working families. And then you can see how you might reform and change welfare policy in order to support people in the new world that's arising. What I don't think there's any evidence for is just giving power back to an unreformed state or thinking that the public sector is going to be able to predict the future of the economy in a more accurate way than the private sector, because I just don't think there's any evidential basis for that. So what does it look like concretely for the state to do a lot more to provide economic justice to people, to provide opportunities to people, but without expanding the role of the state? In something like taxation, how can we make the tax code more fair to 
working people without hugely expanding the role of the state? Well, for example, one of the things that we put forward from the Institute, as you know, was how you reformed land taxation. That would be a major change in your taxation system. It would probably have to happen over time, but it would alter in a quite a profound way some of the imbalances and unfairnesses within the taxation system that exists at the moment. I think how you help redraw the tax system, make it fairer. I mean, there are people at the top end who obviously pay a high proportion of the overall tax take of a country, but there's still a real sense that some people do not pay their fair share of tax. And I think you can address those problems fairly easily, actually. I don't think they're much more than an act of political will. I think the far harder thing is how you deal with those things that aren't just part of the tax system. So if you've got communities feeling left behind in the UK, you're going to have to use infrastructure, education. You're going to have to have a much more active local government helping people survive and prosper in the new world. And I think there's a case certainly in the UK from modern industrial policy that means you're trying to get behind some of the new technological developments and support them and create a much stronger link between universities and local business. You know, all of these policies, I think, are there to be adopted and done. I think the trouble is what I find with the political debate right now is that they're not really part of the debate. Instead, it's pretty much, you know, the left saying we want to go back to public ownership and a form of old style socialism that, you know, there's literally no evidence that that's going to produce great benefits for us. And the right just holding to this concept of the free market at any price and an old sort of trickle down theory of economics. So this is your problem at the moment, is that the space that's uninhabited is where you're trying to devise policies that really appreciate the way the world's changing and are in there doing very practical things for communities and people who aren't going to be able to cope with those changes unless you help them. Is there a productive role for anger in our politics? I, I wonder when we think about taxation, for example, how much of this is about I'm upset with my life and what I can do and how much I can afford, which I think is a big part of it. But I imagine that another part of it, which is pretty important as well, is just the sense of, well, I got to pay my tax every month. My tax gets deducted from my paycheck before I even see it in my bank account. And when I hear that Amazon last year didn't pay any tax, is it one of the roles of progressive politicians to channel that anger into a productive direction, but also to give voice to it? Or do you think that's inherently dangerous and counterproductive? No, I think passion in politics is important. And if you take, for example, the big technology companies and the tax they pay or don't pay, you know, this is a very difficult question that needs to be grappled with, not just at a national, but an international level. But I think some of these policies, I think, are still to be properly formulated My point is the whole time that the process and the spirit with which you come to policymaking is evidence-based and it takes account of the modern world and what will work in the modern world. And it's not just driven by a sense of anger, which then leads people to make policy proposals that sort of ride that anger rather than providing the answer. You know, that can actually be counterproductive. And the important thing, for example, with the technology companies is, look, the public's deeply conflicted about them. On the one side, Amazon and Facebook and Google have transformed people's lives in ways that they actually like. Hmm. You know, people like actually, Google connected. is the most trusted brand among Democrats in the United States, uh, right. more so, so than any state institution. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, so at one level, these technologies have been transformative. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. At another level, we're coming to grips with the fact they are behemoths with enormous power. How do you make them accountable? What's the right way to regulate them? And, you know, yes, of course, they should pay their fair share of tax. What you don't want to do 
is to get into a situation where, for example, with these technology companies, you're kind of targeting them in an angry but not rational <laughs> policy-based way, because then you may end up actually damaging things that in another part of people's lives are doing things for them that they really want. And there is a reason why Amazon is highly successful. It's because people are deciding to do their shopping online. They've decided that. You know, it always made them do right, it. Right. My whole plea is to be mindful of how you do this in a rational way. We're sitting here in Washington, D.C., so I'd be remiss if I don't ask you one last question, which is the talk of a town at the moment. How can a Democratic challenger win in 2020? If you were to give advice to, to any of the 74 people who are running at the moment, <laughs> yeah, it to be a lot. What's, what's the thing that they need to do that, that they aren't doing right now? Understand why you won. Two approaches. You can either try and get your own vote out as much as possible, or you can try and reach out to some of the people who voted for them, understand why that happened. My view is that when you actually study the facts, people who run from the center-left as opposed to the far-left always do better. Now, I think you can make a very, very strong case that empirically there is a lot of evidence to show for that. So that would be my advice, because in the end, if you try and mirror the populism of the right with the populism of the left, number one, I think in those circumstances, the right usually wins. That's my experience. And number two, even if you were to win, you wouldn't necessarily have a policy agenda that would let you carry on winning. So that would be my advice. But I think the Democrat Party here in the US will be riven with the same strains, actually, as progressive parties all over Europe and in the UK. Tony, thank you so much. Thanks, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Design a fancy tote bag that we can sell at a modest price to our listeners. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.